All right, let's get started, everyone. Today I have the distinct pleasure of uh, having Dr. Jeff Silverstein come talk to us from Chicago. Uh, Jeff uh, started his undergraduate training at Penn, went on to University of Illinois at Chicago for med school, and then came here to be, along with me, in the uh, first class of EM-IM critical care combined uh, training. So uh, Jeff now runs a uh, community um, medical ICU in the Chicago suburbs. And so Jeff, thank you very much for coming and welcome. Thank you, thank you for having me. Um, it's actually a, a mixed medical surgical unit that I'm running. Um, what I want to kind of talk about is the idea that um, you guys are getting the tools as critical care fellows to be fantastic intensivists. And that's not necessarily the same toolbox that you're going to require in the community to run an ICU. And so this is just kind of fodder for you to think about. And what I'm going to tell is a story of kind of um, the system of critical care delivery and hospitals. I'm going to tell you about my story, about the metrics and data that I've, that I've amassed over the last couple of years in my little shop. And then finally, I'm going to go into um, a little bit of the literature about uh, the utility of intensivists. So let's get started and stop me at any point and I'm happy to talk and answer questions and so forth. So organization of ICU care, specifically in the community, sometimes in academic medical centers as well as you may know, um, it's quite chaotic. Uh, um, patients are very, very sick. You have multiple uh, consultants. You have the cardiologist that wants to give Lasix and the, and the nephrologist that wants to give fluid. And if you don't have somebody manning the store, then the care of the patient suffers and nobody knows what they're supposed to do. And as you know, uh, the uh, number of hospital beds in the United States has been dropping precipitously, but the critical care beds has gone up significantly. And even in this institution, uh, they've gone up a lot uh, in the last 15 years or so, and at shock trauma as well. Um, the cost for critical care beds is continuing to rise. Um, uh, far more than inflation. And what you're finding is that care is fragmented. Uh, there are multiple consultants, a lot of telephone management, nurse frustration, because they don't know whether to give the fluid and the Lasix at the same time. They don't, you know, they're not being told what to do. Um, uh, this idea that mortality varies widely. There are many complications that are associated with, with critical illness and, and with um, uh, running an ICU. There's an absent captain of the ship in many of these institutions. Um, and what we're finding is that lots and lots of adverse events are happening, more so in the ICU than elsewhere. And so if there's not management in the ICU that's effective, then nobody's going to be looking to this, and nobody's going to be trying to make steps to mitigate it. Um, you can kind of see that we're estimating that lots of lives and lots of dollars are wasted. So... Um, the majority of, of intensive care units in the community are open units. And for those of you who haven't experienced that, what that really means is that there might be a critical care or pulmonary consultant who comes and helps to manage. There's a hospitalist or a primary doctor who comes to manage. There's a nephrologist that comes to manage. And they come, they write their notes, they write their orders, and they leave. And then they come back perhaps the next day. And Oftentimes, then, that becomes very difficult to know what's going on with the patient, and nobody's actually running that, that patient's care from top to bottom. So 
There's, there's lack of peer review. There's lack of control of costs because many times there are going to be multiple tests that are ordered that might not be required. Um, there's, there's an unclear delineation of responsibilities. And all of these disputes that happen between consultants um, happen through the nurses oftentimes um, rather than face-to-face. -face. And so what ends up happening oftentimes is that the patient's care is going to be suffering because the nurse is being torn in two different directions. Um, the family's confused about what's supposed to be done. There's nobody actually talking to them on a daily basis. And there's really no true broad-based performance improvement projects that are taking place. They're just, there's another sick patient, let's take care of this one patient, and there's no real true standardization. So ICUs account for a lot of hospital beds now. It's, it, it's, it's, it's one in 10 hospital beds, um, maybe a, as much as a third of hospital costs. This is just hospital costs. But then, really, between one and one and a half cent of every dollar in the GDP goes to our ICUs. And this is growing. So we clearly need to be better shepherds of our resources, and we clearly need to have somebody who's going to be managing this. So um, the hospitals and healthcare systems are really challenged because nowadays with the Affordable Care Act and with lump payments, they're trying to figure out how to deliver high quality and lower cost care. And you know, uh, what this has done uh, everywhere is created mega systems where hospitals are buying, buying out one another and, and bigger and bigger systems are, are, are the norm now. And the ICU in each of these hospitals is really a high visibility place. Really, it's the emergency department and the ICUs that are the two highest visibility places in, in, in the hospital. And as you know, all the cases that go south end up in the ICU. And so the ICU really is that, that, that place in the hospital where everybody knows, everybody has an opinion, and, and the highest cost is. So um, again, management is crucial. And yet, most remain essentially unmanaged. There's, a, there's generally a nursing manager, but there's generally not a strong medical manager. So um, generally what happens, uh, and, and there are lots of exceptions to this, but generally what happens is that the strongest pulmonary critical care group in, in that community hospital is being told, okay, you can choose a medical director from your group. And they choose a medical director, and they get a stipend from the hospital. The incentives, though, aren't aligned. So triage into the ICU is a real problem. If, if I'm a pulmonologist, and I'm refusing care to Mr. Smith, who has, uh, you know, who's, who's the patient of Dr. Smith, and Dr. Smith refers me 200 lung masses a year, then I'm going to want to be nice to Dr. Smith and, and accept Mr. Smith in the ICU, even if he doesn't meet ICU criteria. So incentives are clearly malaligned. Um, quality improvement projects aren't robust because, again, they have their own life. They're, they're off in their pulmonary clinic. They're in the ICU. They might be going from hospital to hospital, and they may not be as invested in that facility. Not, you know, not everywhere, and, and, and certainly in my shop, they were invested in my shop. But generally, if they're going to four different hospitals, they might not be as invested in one specific facility. Protocols may be unilaterally developed. So most ICUs nowadays, are we good? Down. 
Most ICUs nowadays um, have protocols in place, but um, when you actually do a review, and I was actually a consultant to ICUs before my current gig, and you, and you go and you interview, you see all these beautiful protocols that are written by some very well-trained folks, and then you ask the nurses on the night shift, and you say, how often are you doing the sepsis protocol? And they say, sepsis protocol? We have a sepsis. And so, but they're all in, you know, they're all in the ICU. They're just not actually being utilized. And so they're being developed, but they're not being utilized and they're not being implemented. And so as a result of that, there's really lack of standardization. And if, if Dr. Smith is here today, then he does it this way. And then uh, uh, Dr. Bott over here then is gonna say, well, we're not gonna extubate today, and then so on. So as you can see, this, this, is a, this is a system that's ripe for individual preference rather than standardization and performance improvement. So um, can we come and fix this? Because that's gonna be our job. Uh, there are 7,000 ICUs, and there are 7,000 of us. So it's going to become difficult. There's a huge dearth in critical care practitioners. Um, and are we actually trained to be able to do this? Are we, are we feeling competent in coming out of fellowship, running a community ICU, saying, I'm comfortable taking care of these quality metrics and understanding how to present this data, rather than the excellent care of, the, of, of your ICU patient, because this is essentially, as we, as we talked about, a separate skill set. Um, so as a medical leader, you have to interface with all aspects of the hospital, the C-suite, the administrative suite, uh, nursing, medical staff, and understand the dynamics of a lot of competing interests and understand where they're coming from. Um, so physician leadership, I'm not sure if anyone has ever said this phrase, I don't want to sit in these meetings. Um, but then, of course, you're happy to complain about the decisions that were made in that meeting, right? And so, and, and this continues from medical school to residency to fellowship to then medical staff. And you're very, very happy to say these guys don't know what they're talking about, but who wants to actually go sit in those meetings? There's no real training in leadership, per se. Um, your skill set as, as an outstanding clinical physician does not mean that you're going to be an outstanding leader. But that doesn't mean that you can't learn it. That's a skill set. It's not either who you are or aren't. That's something that you can learn. Um, and then there's a lack of training in hospital finance and politics. Um, ultimately, somebody's going to be making these decisions. Why not you? You know better. You're being trained in critical care. You know better. And so you should be, if you're not going to be a medical director and you're practicing in a community, you should be at the table. Because who better than you? So I just want to take care of patients. Well, you know, too bad. I mean, that's life now. Now you've got to worry about your billing. Even if you're in an academic medical center, you've got to worry about your billing. You've got to worry about these committees that you're on. So you may as well take some ownership. And so I'm going to give you a little story about what, what, uh, you know, what my experience is from the last couple of years. I work in an urban hospital, actually. It's a 16-bed it's a uh, mixed medical surgical ICU. Um, uh, the, the group that uh, was the medical director prior to myself 
uh, was the leading critical care group. There were essentially three critical care groups that were competing for the business, um, and they would round at separate times or sometimes the same times. We had residents, and so the residents would be, would, once the, the critical care attending would come, they'd run to the attending. If there were two critical care attendings at the same time, then somebody's head would explode because they wouldn't know what to do. Um, uh, they would see their patients, and then they would leave. Um, uh, the protocols were in place. They were good. They were good protocols. They weren't being used. And the rounds were based, as I said, based on the, uh, the attendings' timing. Sometimes, you know, they would come to the hospital before going to other hospitals, and so literally they would round at 4.30 in the morning with the night team. Um, they would have their plan for patients, and then they would leave. They'd, they'd be available by phone, but again, uh, uh, there was no standardization of care here. Um, and then all of the pulmonary critical care physicians would have clinic hours as well, in addition to their critical care responsibilities. And so the new system is they decided to look for somebody that wanted to be there and, 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 and wanted to be the medical director where uh, they would have clinical and administrative responsibilities and essentially with the purview of just make it better and you know, try to figure it out. And so what I tried to plan to do was to slowly close the ICU and have an, a single intensivist round on all the patients. So rather than having the primary doctor choose their consultant, we took that choice away, and we said, you are going to choose the critical care physician that we have on, you know, on, on for that week. And that was not an easy political process to create, but it's something that we thought was necessary in order to kind of standardize the process and have everybody on the same page. So um, we standardized and started the multidisciplinary rounding that you guys are used to. So we got nutrition and respiratory therapy and social work and case management all together. For us in, the, in our community hospital where resources are not as present as elsewhere, we, we got their attention for 15 minutes. So between 9.45 and 10 a.m., based on their schedule, we have and we have blink rounds on every patient, one minute per patient. Um, I standardized the documentation, revised the house staff note. It's now a big four-page note that uh, includes things like, like the catheters in place and what pressors they're on, all the things that actually were missing from the old note. Um, so I standardized that. I, I, we did our best to standardize the approach to care, um, discussion of best practice, implementation of a shared vision. So I tried to get buy-in from the nurses, from the medical staff, and then from the critical care folks that were going to be rotating with me in terms of where to go. It wasn't just I sat in my office and tried to figure out what, what best to do. Um, we required critical care board certification to round as an intensivist. That was a new thing um, when we started. And um, we started the, the weekly rotation of, of interested intensivists that were already practicing there. And the, the bottom one, the gaining the trust of referring physicians, surgeons, and administration, that was probably the biggest hurdle. Um, when, when, I, when we started, we, uh, the, the cardiothoracic surgeon had this idea that, 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 that he was going to take care of his patients from start to finish. And then when, when we started, we kind of were able to develop a trusting relationship where he said, great, I can spend more time in the OR. I don't have to worry about extubating my patients and you know, managing their pressors and so forth. We, you, know, you can do that. So that wasn't an overnight phenomenon, but it takes some time and it takes some, some trust. So the house staff, uh, we um, 
have CPOE, we're blessed with CPOE, so we have house staff now on computers putting in orders during rounds, and during rounds we're actually saying what we're gonna be ordering. Um, do we really need daily labs on every patient? Uh, I think that most of us now would say it depends, but probably not. Uh, um, the expectation of limitation to the ICU, of the ICU to the critically ill may sound to you like, well, yeah, uh, but actually that's a big deal because um, in, in, in many places, if anybody says that the patient goes to the ICU, then the patient goes to the ICU. And then once they're in the ICU, then sometimes it's difficult to transition them out of the ICU because they're in the ICU. They must be critically ill. So we restructured the rounding. All the admissions had to go through the intensivist first. So from the ER, the ER, when I started, um, they would make the determination for ICU or not, and they would then send the patient to the ICU. The residents were not allowed, the attendings were not allowed to go down to the ER because that just messed up their process. So they would manage the patient in the ER, the patient would come up to the ICU, and then we'd say, okay, what happened? What? And, and, and we, we kind of restructured that and said, okay, they're gonna call the ICU first. The ICU will go downstairs, evaluate the patient, make recommendations, and then make a triage decision. And we're gonna do that real time in the ED with our eyes and our hands. And you know, the whole thing is a great idea, but you know, the, the administration, the medical staff, they really want you to prove it. I mean, uh, this all sounds fantastic, but you know, uh, you know show me the money. So um, the ICU data that I'm gonna show you, there's, there's far more that I needed to kind of, you know, to, to, to collect, but triage both into the ICU and out of the ICU, ICU length of stay, the unplanned extubation rates. Reason for that was because Everybody before I started, people were on Versed drips and fentanyl drips, and they were sleeping for a long time. And then when we started, we started the ABCDE. We, we use push fentanyl now rather than, than benzodiazepines. And so the expectation might have been to increase the number of un, unplanned extubations. Um, readmission rates, because again, if I'm pushing patients out of the ICU more aggressively, I'd better track how many of those folks are bouncing back to the ICU Otherwise, I'm just a cowboy, right? We're gonna look at whether we're actually gonna make an impact on the amount of testing that we're doing. And so this first one, the colors didn't come out so well. Um, the prior system of triage was if the ED, the admitting physician, or consulting physician, anybody who, who requested the ICU, even the nurses, anybody who requested the ICU, the patient would come to the ICU. Um, the new system is as I said, any physician can request an ICU evaluation, at which point then we evaluate the patient and then we make a determination. The prior system was once they're in the ICU, the, the decision to transfer rested with not only really the admitting physician, but you'd be surprised. They would have to call actually literally every physician on the case to say, is it okay to move the patient out of the ICU? And lo and behold, one physician would say, ah, one more day. <laughs> one more day was quite a mantra. And so the new system is, Really, it's, it, it should be with the intensivist. This idea of transferring out of the ICU should be the intensivist decision finally, but in the beginning, of course, with a lot of collaboration. And so the a priori hypothesis is with effective triage into the ICU, there's gonna be a, a decrease in the number of patients discharged per month. So our number of ICU patients are gonna go down. 
but the severity of illness of those patients is going to go up. And so as a result of that, I was, I was, when I was talking to the administration, I was saying, I think we're going to have fewer patients, but we're going to have a, a longer length of stay. Does that make sense? So what we found was we did see a decrease in the number of admitted patients by about 20%, actually exactly 20%. Um, and, and, and this is over, over a three-month period before I started and after I started. So, so we, we effectively triaged into the ICU. What we found, interestingly, is that our length of stay actually went down too. So our severity of illness, by all measures, went up. But our length of stay went down, which actually shows that there was a really, really great opportunity there to not only affect the, the in, inflow of patients, but that one more day mentality was prevalent. And, and as a matter of fact, this was one full day that, that it went down. So unplanned extubations, again, I apologize for this. The, the prior system said all ventilated patients were essentially asleep. The new, the, the new system was we were trying not to keep them asleep. We actually implemented RAS and CAM. We are uh, now doing evidence-based practice. And uh, the a priori hypothesis was we were going to decrease the number of ventilation days, the ventilator days, but my hypothesis was we were going to actually go up on unplanned extubations. And actually, our unplanned extubations went down. Again, I can't explain that. Um, uh, it might be because we extubated them more aggressively and they didn't need to extubate themselves. Maybe that's it. I mean, you know, we can kind of hypothesize, but that was, uh, that was a, a, a pretty profound decrease. I, I don't have vent days there, but I've got vent days in a few other slides. ICU readmissions, again, uh, the prior system was they were slow to transfer patients and the new system is aggressively transferring them out. Um, again, as, as you're creating a system, you want to have these ideas and you want to present them to administration to say, this is what we're going to expect if the system works. And you might get surprises, and we did get some surprises, like I'm pointing out. Our a priori hypothesis was we were going to increase the ICU admissions. And we defined ICU readmissions by within 24 hours, because again, we were being more aggressive. And so did that happen? Actually, no, it was exactly the same. Um, so again, uh, uh, a bit of a surprise. So cost, and again, cost is a big component to this. And so um, uh, we're charged, all of us are, are charged to decrease the amount that we're throwing into the system because cost is becoming really too burdensome for the, uh, for the economy. So decrease the testing, de decrease the transfusions, and it's now outlined actually in Choose Wisely. So you shouldn't be ordering daily tests, you should be transfusing, and you guys know that. Um, but then the additional boon you know, that I was asking the question is, will they need less head CTs if they're actually awake? Um, so what this is, is cost savings after we implemented. So I, I averaged the three months before and then three months after we implemented the, the project to see what the cost savings were. And I'll kind of go through this. The respiratory cost was down by about 8% or so, pharmacy by about 10%. We got 40% less head CTs we got 20% less echoes, half less chest x-rays. Um, they were daily chest x-rays because they were in the ICU for many patients who were intubated. We stopped that, and we actually decreased the cost by half. MAG levels, less by 60%. CBCs have 50% or 60% there. Basic metabolic panels and transfusion of blood. So really all pretty significant changes. 
Here are, um, we're actually, we, we've submitted to the Journal of Critical Care to see before and after we implemented the, the, the project to see how many ABGs we were ordering and what our average vent days were. Again, thinking that if we're decreasing the number of ABGs, maybe we're not running the vents effectively. And so maybe we should look at that in conjunction with the number of ABGs. And what we're finding is our length of stay went down, our vent days went down. This is the cutoff point here. The, our vent days went down and our ABGs went down. Our ABGs went down by about 60% as well. So really, it's, it's about value and cost. And that's what you want to really drive toward. And value is a very difficult thing to try to identify. But, but the aim really is to improve that, improve quality while reducing cost. And with an ICU, the beauty of this is that they go hand in hand. You can decrease costs tremendously and improve quality. There's a lot of room to do that. And you see that everywhere you practice. Uh, quality metrics, as you know, or as you, as you might find out soon, are notoriously difficult. And really, ICU medical direction, uh, directors are charged with choosing metrics to follow and then collecting data. The, the, the resources that medical directors might have at their disposal might be minimal. So a lot of this might be stuff that we have to do on our own. Um, and trying to figure out what's important to everybody, to try to answer those questions for everybody that's a stakeholder. So who are the stakeholders? Well, number one is going to be the C-suite, the administrators. And so, you know, what they're looking at is they want to elevate the quality of care. And so for that, they may not have a good idea about how to do that, but they know they want to do that. And so that's why you are there, because you need to be there to let them know how to create an intensive presence and, and what's important in an ICU. Um, they'd like to decrease cost of care because, again, they're getting lump sums. They're, they're getting paid more and more on DRGs. And so the less testing they do, the more their profit might be so that they can, even if they're a non-for-profit, they can put that toward research and through to other patient care. So you want to eliminate all the unnecessary testing, all the unnecessary admissions, and please keep the medical staff happy while you're doing all of this because we don't want people to leave. Because if physicians leave, then, then physicians will take their patients with them and then the hospital will suffer. So um, what metrics does the administration value? And, and, and that's a conversation that needs to happen. Um, the medical staff. Here, really, communication is key. Because again, um, they, they uh, in many of these institutions, have very hands-on approach to their patients. And they don't want to have a hands-off approach in the ICU. In academic medical centers, oftentimes, it's hands-off when they're in the ICU, right? And then they, they, they go to the floor, and then the, the, the medical team has to figure out what the heck happened. Whereas you know, in community hospitals, oftentimes, the primary doc really wants a hand in the care. And so in order to do so, it's incumbent on the intensivist to really communicate effectively to all of, all of the medical staff. So um, you have to have appropriate deference to the, to the physician's interests, but at the same time, Maintain patient-centric care. So, you know, I, I put a couple of quotes here. I think, I, I think we could wait another day to ask the nephrologist to see the patient. You know, the creatinine's 1.8. Maybe it'll be 1.2 tomorrow. You know, give us another day to work on them, and maybe we can. So, again, maybe decreasing the, the, the number of physicians who are consulted. And, and that's, you know, arguably one less cook in, in, in the kitchen might be of some benefit. Um, or... Another one which you don't really see in academics, but in communities, is there are multiple different groups that are there to consult. 
not my job to, to, to choose which consultant. I, I, in the beginning, I decided that I was not going to choose. Rather, I was going to defer all of that to the primary care doctors who can then choose the consultants that they want. Um, uh, what's the benefit to them? Again, as you're building this program, you want to talk about benefits to them and benefits to the patient. So the benefit to them really is that if they start trusting your care, then they're going to be offloaded. They can now spend more time in clinic. They can now do additional things rather than making sure that everything's being done in the ICU. So you can allow surgeons more time in the OR if, if they trust your postoperative care. Um, uh, one of the caveats that, that, that becomes crucial to know is that two physicians from different groups can't separately bill for critical care time. And that can become very difficult in trying to negotiate these waters. Uh, nurses, huge stakeholder. And an intensivist-led system, you know, in my mind, by definition, really empowers the nursing staff and engages them. Uh, nurses are, uh, are our best friends. They really are desperate to have somebody lead and take control over patient care. So it really allows for additional autonomy for the, for the, for the nurses because if you're empowering them with protocol-driven plans and they know that they can call you rather than having to call the cardiologist, the nephrologist, the primary care doctor, the oncologist, then, then they feel like they're far more supported. So this is a natural alliance that we have. Um, one call does it all. Patients and families. So clearly, if, if, if you're a patient in the ICU and you have multiple providers coming in and you're asking the cardiologist what the cancer diagnosis is and you're asking the nephrologist how the heart is and so forth, it becomes very confusing. But really, the intensivist, as the leader, can really d define all of these things for the patient and family. And so that's a great, that's a great bonus to kind of sell to, uh, to administration and, 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 to, and, and, and to families. Um, we created an informational packet, and we started implementing fa family presence in rounds and procedures and codes as able, um, which I know is standard, but not standard necessarily in all community facilities. Um, questions so far? So uh, LeapFrog says that intensivists are important. And um, there's some evidence to support that. Um, I've thrown just a few things up here that uh, um, full-time critical care specialists on mortality, intensivists may have some benefit. Um, there have been a, a whole tremendous number of studies about 24-7 versus, and we're not going to get into any of that. I think that, that the argument that I'm trying to make is that intensivists do make a difference and medical direction makes a difference as well. So a closed system is better than an open system, on mortality even, and on length of stay. Um, closed ICU is more efficient. Um, surgical intensivists on ICU utilization and mortality, again, death rates are better. These studies aren't you know, the end-all, be-all, but I think that you know, they're trying to tell a story here. Medical intensivists in a community hospital, mortality went down. High-risk vascular surgery, intensivists may, may have made some, some impact there. And really, if we're diverting patients away from the hospital because we don't have an ICU bed, that's not good for anybody. That's not good for the patient. That's not good for the family. That's not good for the hospital. That's not good for the doctors. Good for nobody. So we need an efficient system in ICUs. Um, and the problem isn't that we have too few ICUs. It's, just that, it's that there's no gatekeeper. The beds are occupied by inappropriate admissions, and there's no intensivist-led team care. And so as a result of that, there is excessive length of stays. 
So if there's no triage authority, then there's ineffective turnover of bed. And so you end up with angry emergency departments, dissatisfied patients, and excessive costs. And the triage issues really, this is the ideal, I think, and, 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 and this was just published a few months ago in JAMA, is if, this, if, if, if the patient can survive and the illness of severity is high, yeah, they belong. Bring them on. If they're not going to survive, then maybe we shouldn't bring them in. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should say, you know what? I know that that ED patient just arrested twice and is on max dose norepinephrine and is on dobutamine and the blood pressure is 50 over 30, maybe we shouldn't be bringing those patients to the ICU. Not today and not tomorrow, but you know, maybe in five or 10 years, we need to, we need to get to that point. Um, what we're finding now is that if, if we have a bed available, then they'll come. If, they have, if there's no bed available, then maybe they won't come. And that's what we're finding now in real time. Um, uh, and, the, and the same here, and I, and I actually did that wrong. Uh, the survivability here and then this is illness severity. So anyway, um, what this means is if there, are no I, if there are no ICU beds, it's difficult to get into the ICU, whether or not you're ill, specifically if you're not ill. But if, if there are lots of beds in the ICU, then you can't really make the argument, hey, there are no beds in the ICU. You say, ah, you know, your hemoglobin is 10, you got a GI bleed, all right, come on in, we'll watch you overnight. And so we shouldn't be driven by bed availability is the point. We should be driven by the patient and, the, and their needs. So pretty fast pre uh, presentation. In conclusion, uh, there really is a dearth of physician leaders. And that's not a happenstance. That's actually something that we need to do something about. That in, in fellowship training, in residency training, uh, we need to have more discussions about how to be a physician leader. Um, never in the history of the United States has the healthcare system changed faster. This is, we are on a collision course, you know, and um, the direction that we take, we need to be at the table to help to make those decisions to make sure that the direction is appropriate. Um, and this is, a, this is a culture that is just ripe for us as intensivists. This is where we belong. We don't belong just at the bedside. We belong at the table. We belong in administration. We, we need to be present to have these discussions and to make the systems better. And cost savings are, are easy while you're decreasing. Uh, while you're decreasing cost, you're, you're improving quality. And, and, and in, in many facilities, this is a relatively easy phenomenon to achieve. The future is sweet. So Jeff, thank you. Um, so some of the data you show, showed was, you know, from your initial experience in your ICUs. Uh, have you had any more recent results that, you know, demonstrate continued uh, improvements or any stagnation? Or uh, can you talk, address that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, so, so, so the question is, um, uh, you have data from early on. How about data currently? And um, and I just had a discussion actually with the, the chief medical officer of my institution this week. Um, what have you done for me lately? It's that discussion. So, you know, great, you know, you, you've done all that, but what about now? Are those cost savings kind of realized and continued or have, you, have we gone back up? And actually, I looked at chest x-rays, FOS levels, and, um, 
and uh, CBCs. And we made a huge impact in the first month, and we've just sustained it. So we haven't gotten better, we haven't gotten worse. We've been exactly the same, um, for the most part, with, with variation. But, but yeah, so, so to your point, the, the, the idea is not to kind of come in, do something new, and then lose focus, but, but really to continue to measure and continue to show that, that, that you're doing what you're saying that you're going to be doing. And they're not going to take your word for it. You might be a nice guy or gal, but they don't care. I mean, they, they really want to see the numbers. And, and regarding, so metrics are a big part of this, and you really need to spend some money in order to save money over the long haul. Uh, how did you do this uh, initially? How did you make that, uh, that convincing argument to track met metrics? What sort of resources did you use when you didn't have those financial uh, uh, deep pockets, I guess? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, I am I, uh, blessed to be in a place with residents and residents who are very happy to be a part of the system because you know now with the new ICU system, they've seen that the, the teaching has gotten better. Um, and so I've asked for their help with collection of metrics. So on every new admission, we're, we're doing a, um, a sepsis screen. Uh, we're doing an MPM3, which is similar to an Apache, but it's free <laughs> and it's easier and it's faster. Um, and, uh, and we're doing a PAL ICU initiative, which is palliative care screen. Um, so we're doing all these things. We're, we're, we're in the uh, Surviving Sepsis campaign. I'm not sure if you guys have that, that, uh, that, that um, program that, that you can download from the Surviving Sepsis campaign. So, 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 so we're in that. We're sending our data there. So with limited resources, you have to be creative. Uh, one of the ways that I was creative is in ha asking for help from the house staff. It's a good question. So, so, so the question is, um, if you're decreasing the, the ICU census by virtue of redefining what critical illness is for that institution, then, the, the, then how do you make sure that the downstream folks are actually taking care of the patients appropriately and, and, and kind of bought in? Is that, um, and, and that's a very, very tough, very, very tough. In the beginning, the way that I did it, was I would have these conversations and say, you know, I think that the patient can be managed on the floor, um, but I'll take the patient today. And if nothing happens, then we're gonna send them out tomorrow. And so in the beginning, I was a little bit more, and, and I was actually tracking how many patients I was refusing. Um, and, 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 and that tracking in the first three months averaged about 10%. So one in 10 patients we were refusing. We should have probably refused a lot more. But then what we found is that the inappropriate ICU consultations went down as they knew that there was a gatekeeper, number one. And number two is that once I had that trust from those physicians saying, you know, I'll take them to the ICU today, tomorrow we're going to transfer, and nothing happened in the ICU, then the next time or two times later I'd say, you know, this patient could be better served on telemetry. You know, we're always here. You know, if something happens, we'll take the patient. And so it was, it was really a relationship thing. And it was really provider by provider rather than just a wholehearted, you know, the patient's not critically ill, not coming to the ICU. I mean, as you know, in the community, uh, that doesn't fly. So it's, it's person by person. It's perseverance. And it's boots on the ground. Good question. So, so the first question is, what's, your, um, uh, what's the model? And are the, are, are the intensivists expected to be 
in the ICU, or can they also have clinic? And our new model now is we have an eight-hour model at 7A to 3P, um, where you're expected to be in the ICU physically, and then you have to be within fi uh, five minutes, you have to be able to reply to a phone call. This is all LeapFrog, so I just kind of stole from LeapFrog. Um, so, and we started at 7 a.m. really because of the resident workflow, the, the 7 P to 7 A shift. I wanted to get the real story from the overnight folks rather than waiting from a sign out to a sign out. So we, so we start at seven, we leave at three, or there are times that you leave at five or six, and then uh, you come back any time that you need to come back. So I've, I've had to come back to the hospital. Um, with regard to, um, they do have clinics, but they cancel the clinics for that week generally, or they might have to schedule their patients for after three o'clock. Um, your second question was, uh, how, how has this impacted their revenue? Um, and the answer to that is variable. So um, uh, they went from having half the patients in the ICU, one or two patients in the ICU, to no patients in the ICU one week, and then all of the patients in the ICU the next week. So uh, it, it, was, it was kind of based on how much they were practicing in the ICU to begin with. Um, they could certainly then spend more time outside the ICU in their pulmonary clinics and doing pulmonary consultations and so forth. And so I can't answer your question other than to dance around the edges like that. Do you have comments on that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, so um, the idea of a closed unit and whether if you, if you come in and impose a closed unit on a community uh, hospital, whether that's an advantageous sort of uh, model. And we did not come in, I mean, like, I, I always use the word closed in, in, in quotations. So um, the first six months, the, the cardiothoracic surgeon and his team were writing all the orders post-operatively. Um, we, were, we were involved in the care, but we were also kind of coordinating and so forth. Um, to this day, there are still some orders that, you know, straggling orders that are written by others. So we didn't come in and mandate, okay, November 5th, this is the way it's going to be. But rather, we were saying, hey, November 5th, you want something? Talk to us. You know, I, um, and, and, and so that's, that's created a better system. But it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly not as black and white as perhaps I was trying to describe it in a short talk. So yeah. And Jeff, as you close it, um, has, have there, you seen any data on, you know, because so much comes down to money, right? So on the financial impact on the hospitalists or the primary doctors that were managing these open ICU patients, have you heard any, uh, have you had any pushback that's continued and saying, look, I don't have the, my, my own personal income has dropped because I am unable to see these patients in the unit. You know, because, yeah, you mentioned from the pulmonary critical care group that, or a critical care group that sees, a, you know, there, somebody in that group sees a patient, the, all the patients for the week and nobody for the next week. So it kind of evens out. But from the uh, primary, you know, clinic physician that also handles patients, uh, in the hospital, what's has been the financial impact on that? That's a that's a good question. So um, when we say a closed unit, we don't mean that that nobody else sees. So we encourage the primary doctors to come to see their patient to write a note. They're not going to be able to bill critical care time. Many of the primary care providers were not billing critical care time to begin with. A closed unit really means really implies that that they're not writing orders. So if they feel like their patient needs blood then they'll talk to us and say, hey, we think that the patient needs blood. And then we'll say, eh, the hemoglobin's eight and a half, 
not really bleeding. Maybe we'll watch for another day. Um, we don't kind of say, well, according to the trick trial, you know, I mean, you, there's a way to say it. Uh, well, well, maybe some of us would say it like that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, there are ways to, agree, to, to disagree agreeably. And, uh, and that's, that, that's really important because ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, like as, as the critical care specialist, it is our job to know that data, you know? And, and they respect that that's our specialty. So they do want us involved. It's just that they may want something that we think might not be helpful or may even be harmful, in which case then we are patient-centric. To facilitate your triage into the unit, uh, have you established any sort of rapid response rules or guidelines for the floor, or how much has your unit extended beyond the walls of the actual ICU? That's a really good question. So um, uh, uh, cr critical care is not based on a location, as you know. And so um, extending the ICU to wherever a critically ill patient is is exactly what we need to do. So um, those patients who are on the floor who require critical care, we don't wait until they come to the ICU physically to start managing them. So um, for RRTs, all of that process was pre-existing. What I added was our ICU senior resident would go and would coordinate the care with the, 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 the intensivist. Two o'clock in the afternoon, two o'clock in the morning, it doesn't matter. We're getting a call and we're coordinating that care. So um, while the patient's being transferred to our unit, we're still impacting and implementing care. Were you able to uh, effectively manage patients at night uh, once you uh, closed the unit? You know, what, what kind of uh, schedule impacts on, on yourself existed following that, that change? Um, there are some nights that uh, you're up all night and then you're working the next day because you're getting calls. I've, I've gone in to do procedures or to, you know, to, to, to do stuff. Um, uh, and then there are some nights where it's really quiet. So um, it, 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 sometimes it's house staff dependent, sometimes it's patient dependent, um, but uh, doing a week clinically in a row can sometimes be uh, a bear. Excellent question again. So, so the question is whether um, uh, uh, there were difficulties in getting credentialed at, at the institution for procedures. Um, and I, I, I haven't run into that. There was, there, there was really a need for somebody to kind of be able to do the, all these procedures. And so I've, I've personally, in, in this place and in the previous place I was at, didn't run into those issues. But, uh, but, but that's a hospital with a lot more resources, which, which, you know, far more battlegrounds with more resources, I think. From the house staff, what were those negative? So, um, uh, they had a one-page note which sometimes neglected pressers and foleys and central lines. They would round, uh, you know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. They'd put in orders to get a CAT scan another day. I, I have them pre-rounding and ready to present at 7 a.m. So they're coming at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. Um, you can imagine that there might be some pushback to that. Um, uh, they have a four-page note now, whereas they just, and it's standardized, and it's got everything on it, and so they have a lot of data to, to accumulate. Um, they've said that, that that helps them to kind of think about things, and, and it's kind of helped their educational process as well. Um, but I think that the time, and uh, I think the time is the real 
hard thing for them uh, uh, from a house app perspective. And, and you know, just the idea that I'm asking them to do all of these things such as uh, you know, the MPM3 and all of these screening things to kind of help me to kind of, you know, to manage my ICU. And so they've, they haven't complained that much about that. But I think that, that, that we're, at, we're certainly asking them to do more and more. Um, but they've seen the benefit in terms of if you have a, a, a single intensivist there for the day rather than running off and going to their clinic, then there's clearly more teaching. And, th and there's now expectation that every attending has a noon topic. And I have 24 topics that, that, you know, for every month. So, so we just kind of rotate topics. Additionally, uh, you know, everything you weigh pros and cons, right? You know, maybe it's a little more time intensive on their, from their standpoint earlier in the morning, but uh, Dr. Zilberstein's won the teacher, of the teacher of the Year Award two years in a row at his hospital of all the physicians. So, I mean, you know, there's a, uh, despite all the negatives, you know, they clearly appreciate the changes that have been made. question is whether uh, satisfaction scores have gone up as a result, and that's a great question because, as you know, HCAPS is everywhere, um, and, and every hospital is very interested in those. Because the ICU isn't the primary unit, we tend to get off the, uh, off the HCAPS train. So um, in, in development of my ICU family packet, I'm also distributing the CCFSC or something, the, the critical care satisfaction score that was validated. I, I think I stole it from 2002 critical care medicine where it was published. And so I'm using that. I'm not getting that much back. So um, uh, we have some ways to go in trying to get those, those surveys to come back. So I can't really tell you. Um, I can tell you that the other thing that I've started doing is about, I, I've done this twice now, bringing a family back into an auditorium just like this and interviewing them uh, to kind of talk about their experience in front of everybody to kind of say, what did we do well? What aren't we doing well? And so that's also kind of, I think, helped with the culture of really, I mean, this is a service culture now that we have to implement. So um, that's kind of helped along those lines as well. But I can't tell you, I can't tell you data because our, our, our data is poor. All right, well, thank you, Jeff, very much for uh, uh, coming to us and to teach us about this. It's really helpful and I hope very enlightening for all of us. So. Appreciate it. Thanks.